We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Ave Welcome everybody back to another episode on socialism in the church. This topic, the crucifixion of Fulton Sheen. This might get a one or two eyeballs, Michael. Yeah, just one or two. <laughs> as long as they roll the right direction. <laughs> Don't get stuck in the back of your heads after it. <laughs> As long as the eyeballs bug out and just don't roll toward the ceiling. Yes, yes. So, as we saw in our last episode, I and mean, this, this is starting to sound like Batman. I know, I think it needs to get some music like dun dun dun. <laughs> <laughs> or more like dun 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 dun. <laughs> Hopefully, that's the V for victory. Our hero is now in the field. <laughs> more like in the trenches on this one. <laughs> I mean, I mean, and actually, that's a good way to start because by the end of World War One, which of course was trench warfare at its worst, uh, Monsignor John A. Ryan was established in his position firmly at the Catholic University of America. He was the leading social justice advocate in the world, very uh, at this time probably, although it became definite about twenty years later, uh, which we'll get into later. In a, in a future episode, same bad time, same bad channel, uh, and of course he had done managed to do this with his, shall we say, political skill, and uh, which we went over the last time. Uh, frankly, his idea of social justice was really just the new things under different names: hmm. socialism, modernism, esotericism, you know, the new age, generally. Although, of course, I'll get new age adherents uh, will say. Well, there's one, there's good things in the new age. I never said there wasn't. There's truth in just about everything or it wouldn't be able to fool people. And and this, they're probably correct on this one. I tend to use new age to describe all of esotericism, which is not strictly speaking correct. Mm -hmm. You know, like Father Mitch Pacwa, he goes after the new age specifically and analyzes that. When I say new age, I tend to mean the whole esoteric philosophy, that sort of thing, and its adherence. Mm -hmm. But uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, Monsignor John A. Ryan was into it. And uh, he tended to go after people. Not He tended to, tended to avoid discussing ideas, but he found people much easier to go after and that brings us to our the specific instances we're talking about today. One of the chief targets of his wrath, you, you, you could say, was some fellow named Fulton J. Sheen. Heard of him. I, yeah, you may have heard of him. Uh, back in 1958, Sheen published a book, uh, which he called Life of Christ. Now, I admit that my mother had it on her shelves, and I never read it. It just sounded, why do we need a life of Christ when we have the Bible? I mean, what, what's he going to tell us that isn't in there? I didn't know very much about Fulton Sheen at that time, other than that he was some guy on television once in a while. And he was talking about things I didn't understand. So I figured, life of Christ, I'm not going to. You know. Well, then, of course, later I found out. You read the that, first edition. <laughs> well, yeah. When he said... You know, in the preface to the book, he said something unusual. He said, this book was written to find solace in the cross of Christ, as for about 10 years of my life, I endured a great trial. Now, most people, when they read that, aren't going to really connect it, because one, it's in a preface, and two, you want to get to what Fulton Sheen said about the life of Christ. You don't want to read about what Fulton said about why he wrote the book. Mm. I mean, 
Most people don't even read prefaces, frankly. Although they probably should because there's a lot of good stuff in them. There you there's do. a Indeed. reason an author might write a preface. Yeah. It's not there just to pick up a page. Yeah. It's, it's like the preamble to the Constitution. Uh, my associate, Norman Curlin's professor in constitutional law, uh, William Winslow Krosky, made a big thing about the wording of the preface to the United States Constitution. He said, that's not just there for decoration or an intro the way the living Constitution people tell you. It has real meaning. It starts off with, we the people delegate to the state these rights that we have by nature, which sets the tone of the whole document, which the United States Constitution is not a grant of rights from the state to the people. It's a grant of rights from the people to the state, which makes it actually makes more sense than uh, than the way the, the Harvard School and the Living Constitution people have it. <clears throat> but enough for that commercial and constitutional law. <laughs> uh, we get back back to Fulton Sheen in 1920. He began his doctoral program at Catholic University. Now, back in 1917, he had won a scholarship from the Knights of Columbus right after college to attend Catholic U. But he decided to go to the seminary on and become a priest before he attended the Catholic University. And maybe he wouldn't attend the Catholic University once he became a priest and you know discerned you know the particulars of his vocation. But immediately after being ordained, he uh, was accepted at Catholic University for the doctoral program in the School of Sacred Sciences, what they now call School of Theology. And uh, it turns out that the School of Sacred Sciences was headed by, guess who? Monsignor John A. Ryan. And uh, frankly, it was in a shambles. The program at Catholic University, at least in theology, was took its cue from its head, of course, and was basically a hotbed of modernism, socialism, and new age garbage. And by 1921, when he had started his second year, Fulton Sheen realized this. He figured out that, you know, students aren't being educated in theology, they're being indoctrinated in, you know, the new things. And so what he did was he asked the advice of one of his professors. And apparently the faculty there were fully aware of what was going on, as was the rector, as we will find out. And what Fulton Sheen said about the situation, this is most of the stuff I'm getting from Fulton Sheen is from his autobiography, Treasure in Clay, of which I do have a first edition. But I've, I've, I've mistreated it badly. It's <laughs> in pretty bad condition. It might actually be worth money one of these days if I hadn't used it for research. And he, what Fulton Sheen said was, <clears throat> and forgive me for all the quotes, but again, I have to lapse into using somebody else's words because I don't have them. It says, I felt that I did not have a sufficiently good education to merit the degree of doctor of philosophy. I confided my worries to one of the professors who said, what would you like to have in education? I said, I should like to know two things. First, what the modern world is thinking about. Second, how to answer the errors of modern philosophy in light of the philosophy of St. Thomas. That's of course, St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, and notice that both of those things that Sheen said he wanted to get out of an education were the very things that Monsignor Ryan was undermining with his theories. And the professor told him, <coughs> he said, you will never get it here, but you will get it at the University of Louvain in Belgium. Huh. In other words, even the faculty knew <laughs> that the program at the Catholic University of America was in bad shape. So Fulton Sheen transferred to the Louvain now, this is interesting because on his way there, this nobody graduate student who had just managed to tick off the head of the School of Sacred Sciences at the Catholic University of America by saying, this program stinks, I want to transfer out, met with Pope Pius XI, who had just been elected. Hmm. Now, they discussed Monsignor Aloysius Taparelli. Now, you remember him from a previous episode. Mm -hmm. He was the fellow who first used social justice in the Catholic sense. 
And Taparelli's concept of social justice was that in a manner consistent or conforming to the magisterium of the church and to the natural law written in the hearts of all men, all individual acts should be performed with an eye to the common good of all mankind. In other words, if you're considering an individual act, and there's nothing wrong with it, you know, individually, but it could have repercussions on other people or the common good as a whole, reconsider. You know, it may not be the, the right thing to do, even though it's good for you and there's nothing wrong with it individually, socially and indirectly, there may be something that harms society. Now that's a pretty vague concept of social justice, but it's still better than the socialist concept of social justice, which was what it got corrupted into. I mean, social justice as a defined term, more or less, started as a Catholic concept, but it quickly became a socialist, modernist, new age type of thing, simply because it's a great term, but it had to wait until Pius XI to get a specific definition. In fact, between Taparelli and Pius XI, hardly anyone in at the Vatican used the term social justice. It, it appeared in two curial documents in a very obscure way, hmm. twice in almost a century. It was not until Pius XI who gave it a specific defined meaning that social justice has, uh, actually we could do an entire program on that, <laughs> but I'm trying to get back to Sheen here. Anyway, Pius XI and Fulton Sheen, this nobody graduate student, discussed Taparelli. Pius XI said, have you read Taparelli? And Fulton Sheen, of course, had never heard of him. And so Fulton Sheen, being the guy he was, and honest to a fault, said, no, your holiness, I've, you know, I haven't read a single word of him. And Pius XI said, I want you to read every single word Taparelli wrote. And so, of course, Sheen, being obedient, did. He picked up a good notion of the pre-Pius XI concept of social justice. Now, in my opinion, and I have to stress that this is only my opinion, Pius XI was fully aware of what was going on at the Catholic University. He was fully cognizant of what Monsignor Ryan was doing and what was wrong with it. I've read several biographies of Pius XI and they all make the same point over and over. He was a researcher, he was a librarian, he was a, a world-class scholar. He had three doctorates, but he also kept up on current events. I mean, he would spend hours, even after he became Pope, in the library, you know, at night. I think it was, they said it was rare that he got to bed before midnight because he was reading all the important journals that came in. He knew what was going on both in the civil world and in the religious world, especially. So he was fully aware of what Monsignor Ryan was doing and why it was wrong. Imagine him with Twitter. Pardon? <laughs> Imagine him with a Twitter feed. <laughs> Actually, I don't think that he would have been very comfortable with that simply because of the limited number of characters. <laughs> because when Pius XI went into something, he went into it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's never these superficial meanings that people have put on his encyclicals. You have to really understand the background that he wrote them in and the language that he was using. I mean, one of the most misunderstood encyclicals of all time, in my opinion, is Quas Primas on the Feast of Christ the King. Uh -huh. What he was doing, if you know the background, and of course I've listened faithfully to all our videos, is that the socialists and the modernists and the New Agers all worked for something called the kingdom of God on earth. So what Pius XI did very cleverly was juxtapose the reign of Christ the King, which is 180 degrees from the kingdom of God on earth. Now, if you want to find out more about the socialists and the kingdom of God on earth, look into the work of Dr. Julian Stuba of Heidelberg University. He has done an immense amount of work linking socialism and esotericism. Now, I don't know whether he's Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, Muslim, or tree hugger, or druid, or what, but his analysis is spot on. Huh. 
I don't think he gets into modernism, but if you know about modernism and the link between modernism and socialism, you'll see it all through his analysis that this is what was going on. But now, back, meanwhile, back at the ranch here, I, in my opinion, Sheen was being groomed to counter Ryan. And the, and also start inserting a true understanding of social justice to counter Monsignor Ryan's, you know, socialist version of social justice. And you'll see what happened. I mean, the one thing that Sheen was not was a politician. He was a showman. He was vain. He admitted it himself and made a joke about it, which made it very bearable. I said, there's nothing better than somebody who's vain who can joke about it. Yeah. It's like me, I'm very proud of my humility. I mean, <laughs> there's, a, there's a clip of a movie. I don't know what movie it is. And the lady's telling the guy, what I'm looking for to man is he's so humble that he doesn't even know that he is humble. And the guy goes, well, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen it. I've seen a lot of old movies, but I haven't seen that one. Uh, so anyway, Sheen transferred to the Louvain, which had a one big advantage. It didn't have a residency requirement, which meant that he could be somewhere else in, and not in residence in Belgium. And where he ended up was St. Edmund's College Ware in the UK. That's W-A-R-E. And there he worked with and was taught by Monsignor Ronald Knox. Uh, if you're familiar with who Ronald Knox was and his translation of the Bible, his mystery stories, his satire, and of course his magnificent book, Enthusiasm, which he only made a couple of mistakes that I would, of course, would not have made. But uh, since I'm so humble, I can't tell you what they are. <laughs> now, it was, apparently it was through uh, Monsignor Ronald Knox that he met some guy named G.K. Chesterton. Now, <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> uh, but it was also at St. Edmund's that, in my opinion, I can't find anything specific. I tried to make contact with St. Edmund's and they would never answer anything. Uh, I guess I have to have a big name or be rich or something to get a response from some people. But Knox seems to have introduced Sheen to the work of a guy named William Hurl Malick. We mentioned him before. And Knox seemed to just he, he loved Malik's work, even though Malik was what they call an Anglo-Catholic and never converted. Although there are some sources that say Malik converted on his deathbed, but that is not true. He did not convert. He died in 1921 or 22, about the time Chesterton did convert. Uh, now, and Knox's, uh, he would keep rereading this book that Malik's first novel called The New Republic, which was a satire. I've tried to read it. And the people being caricatured and the, the, the issues being satirized, I can't understand them. Not one bit. But Knox evidently did and loved it. But more important was Malik's book called uh, Property in Progress, which came out in 1884. It was a response to Henry George. Remember Henry George? Every episode. <laughs> yes. And uh, Malik's, he was a capitalist. He made no bones about that. But frankly, his defense of capitalism was lousy. But his critique of socialism was spot on. In fact, Henry George admitted that, you know, Malik's critique of his stuff in Property and Progress and the Quarterly Review was the only reply. <laughs> I knew I was going to do that. The only reply to himself, which was worth being considered seriously. And Malik got heard that from a lady of unquestioned uh, probity, shall we say? I mean, Henry George actually admitted that somebody had given a good critique of him. Now, of course, George Bernard Shaw hated Malik. And of course, because Malik's defense of capitalism was so bad, that's what Shaw went after. He completely avoided Malik's critique of socialism. Well, of course you're gonna do. I mean, Shaw was a genius at that. He could pick apart, you know, 
find the slightest error in your argument in support of what you were saying and completely ignore the huge defects of his own. Of course, Chesterton realized that later and made fun of him and he refused. After the first couple of debates where Chesterton made the mistake of giving a specific and Shaw was all over him like a cheap suit. Uh, after that, Chesterton would never give Shaw anything to hang something on. And it drove Shaw absolutely batty. After Chesterton's conversion, they had an, uh, 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 a random meeting at a house some a time in 1923, I think. And this was not planned. He just happened, Chesterton just happened to show up as Shaw was about ready to leave. And they ended up having a debate, which one of the people there, Hesketh Pearson, took down in shorthand. And Chesterton refused to be pinned down. And finally, Shaw just got so outraged that he stomped out of the room. And where uh, Chesterton's just sitting there smiling, you know, he hadn't even been debating. He had just been refuting everything Shaw said by refusing to get angry and argue with him. <laughs> anyway, uh, to return to Malik and Sheen, uh, in 1888, Malik wrote a book answering the positivists and the, you know, the secularists, uh, and it was titled, Is Life Worth Living? with a question mark. And basically, according to Knox and possibly Sheen, Malik destroyed the positivist position, which eventually leads, you know, it's moral relativism, and it leads eventually to nihilism, you know, the belief that, well, life doesn't mean anything, so of course it's not worth living, and Malik was responding to that. Excuse me. Now, where have you heard that phrase before? Well, it was a constant theme of Fulton Sheen. Life is worth living. He got that from Malik, in my opinion. As I said, some of this stuff I can't prove, so I will say it is my opinion. Just use but the I, phrase coincidence theorist. Yeah. <laughs> but if you ask me, there's extremely strong you know, uh, evidence for it. And... Malik also wrote a book in 19, published in 1900, I don't know when he wrote it, it was published in 1900, called Doctrine and Doctrinal Disruption, in which he shredded virtually all the different sects of the Church of England. Of course, except his own, which he also went after because they weren't completely Anglo-Catholic. I mean, about the only thing that uh, Malik was not was a I will not use, I hate to use this term as I explained in the first video, a Roman Catholic, you know, or as pejoratively said, a papist. No, there's only the Catholic Church. I mean, of course, you've already, I've already given you that speech. But, uh, now, as I said, the, the fact is that Chesterton and Malik uh, were, as, were leading many people to convert to Catholicism but not converting themselves, although Chesterton eventually did in 1922. Uh, I, I found this article in, from 1910 from let's see, the Intermountain Catholic. And it's, it said that both, it was referring, it, the title of the article was Since Cardinal Newman's Death. It was talking about the state of the church and people who converted as did Newman. But it, then it mentioned Chesterton and Malik that says they were they continue the part of the church bell, ringing others in without entering himself. Of course, which was now one of the uh, people that Malik helped lead into the Catholic Church was a fellow named Monsignor Robert Hugh Benson. You may have heard of him. His uh, a lot of people think that his science fiction satire, Lord of the World, is actually a work of prophecy. No, it's not. It's a satire. And what he's satirizing is the new things. And people say, oh, but he predicted this, that, and the other thing. Well, actually, Lord of the World is an example of what was called in the last century, the early part of the last century and the latter part of the 19th century, the future war genre of science fiction, which started in 1871, uh, by coincidence, the year Robert Hugh Benson was born, with a short novella called The Battle of Dorking, 
no comments, please. It was by Sir George Chesney. And what it was, was that after the Franco-Prussian War, in which France had shown itself to be woefully unprepared for a European war, Sir George Chesney thought that England was equally unprepared because all they'd been fighting were colonial wars to expand the empire. So what he did was set this story in, in, the, in the future of 1941, where a fellow is looking back on the 1870s in England when Prussia invades England and conquers it. And the whole novella is all the stupid mistakes that the, the British were making for being unprepared and having inadequate weaponry and tactics in you know, trying to confront the Prussian war machine, which had just conquered France. And as the genre evolved, there were certain things that were in all of them. Almost always there was an American or an English hero, and there was always a super weapon of some kind, usually something that sounded like an atomic bomb, but it was always, it was always a great huge explosion, explosive. And there was some kind of flying machine. Uh, and of course, it was always a world war of some kind. And looking at these elements, you find them all in Lord of the World. Benson was not making up anything. In fact, later, in, he, he admitted, he says, he knew the science was, was lousy. But what he was doing was, you know, basically putting the future war science fiction genre into a Catholic setting to oppose these uh, new things. And it was a, a brilliant performance. Unfortunately, it failed as satire because people started taking his prophecy, you know, soon after it was published. And, and to this day, you still see, oh, this magnificent apocalyptic novel. Well, it's a satire, keep that in mind. And The Dawn of All, which was sort of a, he called it a counterblast to Lord of the World. And I'm getting into Robert Hubens. <laughs> I should be focusing on Sheen. Sorry about that. We, we can do another series on Robert Hugh Benson. I've got a million of them. In fact, I even published a book on Newman's, Cardinal Wiseman's, and Benson's fiction. Most people don't even know that Cardinal Newman wrote fiction. He wrote two novels. And it shows that if Newman had gone at it, he could have been a great novelist. But that's not what he was doing. And actually, it's, the first one is kind of funny if you know the environment they wrote in him. But again, I'm getting diverted. You're supposed to stop me. You're the host here. Uh, anyway, <laughs> anyway, uh, Robert Hugh Benson credited Malik with removing a lot of his doubts about conversion. You, you know, Benson struggled quite a bit with this. His father was the Archbishop of Canterbury. I mean, uh, but Benson wrote a, wrote a, wrote a letter to a friend of his, he says, but I have just been reading today an irresistible book, Malik's Doctrine and Doctrinal Disruption. My word, it is a masterpiece. Really, honestly, I have practically no further doubts. So Malik was good at convincing other people, but was never convinced himself to become a Catholic. Now, Chesterton, who did, uh, seems to have acquired, a, a, you know, developed a lifelong friendship with Fulton Sheen. The problem was that their correspondence was destroyed. And a friend of mine who became a Catholic in large measure because of Fulton Sheen thinks that because it was because the correspondence mentioned a lot of things about Monsignor John A. Ryan and Fulton Sheen was not going to make the church look bad by exposing any of this, which in my opinion was a mistake because when this stuff comes to light, then the problems could be corrected. A cover-up doesn't help anybody. It just makes the problem worse. Now, Fulton Sheen did, besides teaching at St. Edmunds College where it was, write his book for his doctoral thesis. And the, if you read the book carefully, and I've you know, met people who you know, read the book and they said, that is the most difficult thing Fulton Sheen ever wrote. I, it's very hard to understand. Well, first of all, it was the first thing he wrote for publication of that nature, you know, first book. And second, it was an academic treatise. So it is a little bit difficult to slog through, 
And finally, you have to realize what he was writing against, the new things. And the shift from, uh, you know, the whole idea of God being in charge to man being in charge. Remember Durkheim's uh, theory of God is a divinized society. Well, that's what socialism, modernism, and New Age end up being, is the divination, div turning man into a god and turning God into some servant of man. You know, my God wouldn't do that. Well, yeah, but maybe God would. I mean, who are you to be telling me what God is doing? I mean, half the time you don't know what you're doing any more than I know what I'm doing. So we're looking at you, Oprah. <laughs> We won't get into that. <clears throat> uh, anyway, Chesterton wrote the foreword to uh, uh, Sheen. <laughs> I knew who we were talking about. Fulton Sheen's book, which was, the full title is God and Intelligence and Modern Philosophy in Light of the Philosophy of St. Thomas Aquinas. Oof. Just remember it as God and Intelligence and you'll be able to get it. Unfortunately, the copy I have doesn't have an index, which I think is terrible. I mean, I actually have to read the book to find out where something is. And Chesterton wrote the introduction. And in it, he said, in this book, as in the modern world generally, the Catholic Church comes forward as the one and only real champion of reason. And once again, we get back into that, you know, the whole faith versus reason instead of faith and reason. Because ultimately, the new things are faith-based. It's just faith in your own opinion rather than faith in what has been revealed. And of course, as Aquinas and most of the other doctors of the church have pointed out, the foundation of faith is reason. And this has been infallibly taught in the First Vatican Council and reiterated in the Oath Against Modernism and in Humani Generis and constantly he said, strictly speaking, or as Pius the, 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 the 12th said in Humani uh, Generis, absolutely speaking, which is even stronger, knowledge of God's existence and of the natural law uh, can be determined by the force and light of human reason alone. Now, it doesn't say it has been. It says it can be, which means that whatever you hold by faith, cannot contradict what you hold by reason any more than what you hold by reason can contradict faith. It's faith and reason, not faith or reason. Uh, so much for that some, that sermon there. Now, uh, let's see. I, that's the trouble with these digressions as I get off my track here. And I, I have my little script here and I, I forget where I am. Uh, Anyway, Fulton Sheen graduated with the highest honors from the Louvain. Now, to show you what kind of intellect Sheen has had, uh, in the, the University of Louvain had been around for about 600 years. In that time, only around 40 people have been granted the degree at the level Fulton Sheen got it. I, I once worked out what that means for how many per year. It was 0 .00 something, I don't know. But anyway, you're talking about one of the most tremendous intellects in the Catholic Church in the 20th century. Or actually, one of the greatest intellects in the world at that time. And then you find out what happened to him when he went up against the great Monsignor John A. Ryan. Now, immediately, Fulton Sheen got offers to teach, I think maybe one of them was from Oxford. I mean, people wanted him to teach at their university. Yeah, he could name, he could write his own ticket, but his bishop ordered him into pastoral work for a year. It's like, why are you taking this gigantic intellect and assigning him as a pastoral assistant in some rinky-dink little burg someplace in your diocese? Well, teach him humility. I mean, Fulton Sheen himself admitted he was vain. And when you read about it in his autobiography, he said, yes, it was good for him. I mean, he had at least enough humility to admit when he was wrong. <laughs> um, so, and, and you notice, you know, reading his biography, autobiography and the biographies, when it seems that whenever he came up against something, that it was either him or the church 
he was always obedient. I mean, he may have been a great showman. He may have liked to, uh, you know, he was, a, as he pointed out, he was vain and everything else, but he was also obedient, which is remarkable these days. Now, in my opinion, you know, he was, after his year of pastoral work, he was assigned to the Catholic University of America. Now, as I said, in my opinion, he was being groomed for that. Because, of course, his transfer to the Louvain would have come to the attention of Bishop Shahan and Pius XI. I'm, as I said, I'm speculating here. And the fact of his doctoral thesis, which refuted every single position that Monsignor Ryan had, made it even better. The fact that he graduated, that he was conferred his degree with the highest honors at Louvain seemed to, this is the guy. So, but they had to make certain that he would, you know, conform to what they needed. So they tested him for a year. Is he obedient? Is he humble enough to take orders? I mean, we need somebody who doesn't have the colossal ego of Monsignor John A. Ryan, which is so great that it can override, you know, even church doctrine and truth itself. And also take down anybody who gets in his way. Uh, so I think that Shahan got Sheen all these Irish names, you know, uh, was a special request. He needed Sheen at Catholic U, and he got him. Now, Bishop Thomas Joseph Shahan, who was the rector of the Catholic University at that time, is himself an interesting guy. He was an examiner in the Father McGlynn case. There were two others. I don't recall their names. I had them written down someplace, but this is the one we're interested in. And when Ryan published his book, Distributive Justice in 1916, the whole first section doesn't seem to fit with the rest of the book. And in my opinion, I think Bishop Shahan, as rector of the Catholic University demanded that Ryan renounce or at least distance himself from Henry George and Father McGlynn because he really toned it down. The whole first part of distributive justice is a very strange dissertation on Henry George's theory of title. Well, title was completely irrelevant to Henry George. I mean, and of course, anyone who has studied law, the law of property knows that, you know, legal title is meaningless if you don't control. Control is ownership, not mere legal title. It could be, uh, as I said, meaningless and this was embodied in Henry George's theories because he says, regardless who owns title, if the state takes all income from land, the state is the owner. The state can become the universal landlord without calling itself so. And so Monsignor Ryan sticks this long dissertation on Henry George's theory of title, why it's wrong. Well, it was a complete red herring. It was to throw Shahan off. I don't think it did, but it met the minimum requirements for getting that book published. Now, and as I said, Shahan probably, in my opinion, asked for Sheen especially to be assigned to the Catholic University of America. Now, this is interesting because from the very beginning, Sheen was made to feel unwelcome. Now, this is very, it's, it's couched in very vague language. And, but you can see it in his autobiography and in other biographies of Sheen. No specifics, just things that were going on. And after about a year, uh, he was in a, now this is an interesting, I think Sheen was being tested by Shahan. In other words, how much guff can you take? Because if I put you against Ryan, you're gonna be you're taking it in the neck. And so during a faculty meeting, uh, the rector came out in favor of some, something so trivial that Sheen didn't even bother to mention what this specific issue was, but he did say he disagreed with the rector on it. And it looked like Shahan was just saying, you know, who the heck do you think you are opposing me? And it just basically dismissed Sheen from the meeting. Afterwards, the other faculty members came up and said, boy, you wrecked your career tonight. You're finished here for good. You know, I mean, you're dead meat. 
Well, they, of course, they didn't put it that way. Well, a couple of weeks later, or maybe it was a couple of days later, Sheen was walking across campus and Shahan comes by in his car, probably chauffeur driven. He was getting rather on at that time. And he told Sheen to come to his quarters immediately. And Sheen figures, I'm dead. I am about to be dismissed. He just wants to do it in private to make certain that I don't misunderstand here. So Sheen gets to the bishop's quarters and there Shahan has put on his full regalia, everything. And he, you know, he sits down and orders Sheen to kneel before him. And Sheen is going, I'm dead. This is the end. I'm finished. And so Shahan puts his hands on Fulton Sheen's head and goes, young man, this university has not received into its ranks in recent years anyone who is destined to shed more light and luster upon it than yourself. God bless you. <laughs> she almost fainted. Be like, come again? <laughs> yeah, that was pretty much it. And it says, in my opinion, Sheen had passed Bishop Shahan's tests. In other words, he had shown he wasn't afraid to oppose the rector, even on a trivial issue where he could have given in with no problem. But being honest, he was not going to do it. He didn't believe it. He wasn't going to. He had accepted an assignment to parish work in a nothing diocese, in a nothing parish, when he had been offered the highest academic honors in the world. And then he had taken all kinds of guff from the other faculty at Catholic U. So... He passed the test. Now, Fulton Sheen, I, I checked the papers for this period of time. Anytime there was anything happening at a Catholic university, Sheen's name was there. He was clearly Bishop Shahan's protege. Uh, if there were, and unfortunately, what happened was that, well, well clearly, Ryan, Monsignor Ryan, was, was insanely jealous of Sheen because he was used to having his name in the spotlight. He was used to being you know, the cock of the walk, king of the theology department. And here was this upstart who had criticized his program to such an extent that he transferred out to the Louvain, and now he's coming back and putting, trying to put me in my place by being better than me. And he's also appearing at all these functions at the university that I'm not even invited to. Yeah. For someone of his ego, that was a slap in the face. Now, uh, unfortunately, that was, that was in 1926. Shahan retired in 1927. And he was replaced with a fellow, and this is where it gets confusing, James H. Ryan as rector. Uh, a friend of mine who was a Sheen scholar got so confused that he thought that James Ryan was going after Fulton Sheen when it was John Ryan. And they were both Monsignors, so you can't. So I will refer to, I'll try to refer to the one as Rector Ryan and the other one as Monsignor Ryan, just in case I forget, just to keep, try to keep them straight. It was clear that Rector Ryan was continuing Bishop Shahan's, you know, favoring Sheen to try to position him, to try to lift up the standards of the school. I mean, the academic standards of the Catholic University and the theology department were, as I said, in an utter shambles under Ryan. And James Ryan was trying, you know, the rector Ryan was trying to restore the things as, as fast as he could, as well as he could. Unfortunately, I don't think he was quite the man to do it because Bishop Shahan, you know, was a pillar of iron behind Sheen. James Ryan, uh, I think he was kind of unsure of himself and he easily went down before Monsignor John A. Ryan. But still, I mean, Fulton Sheen was clearly being favored. You look at the newspaper reports, the, the Washington Star used to print a lot of Catholic University news. Uh, and he was, he was the one who presented official reports. He delivered papal benedictions. I mean, a new, he'd only been there two years and here he was you know, doing all these things. He con-celebrated solemn high masses. He discussed a national program of instruction in Catholicism with, with Frank Sheed, you know, Sheed and Ward. Uh, well, that, of course, stuck in Monsignor John A. Ryan's craw, at least in my opinion. And so Ryan, Monsignor John A. Ryan, began forcing confrontations. 
Now, if you can believe it, he actually had the theologians in, the, in his department accusing Fulton Sheen of heresy in order to get him removed from the, from the faculty. I mean, Fulton Sheen, a heretic, right. Now, and that was, uh, came from somebody who actually admired Ryan. Um, it was in, uh, or was it? Oh yeah, Thomas Reeves, America's Bishop, The Life and Times of Fulton Sheen. And according to Reeves, Fulton Sheen greatly admired Ryan. I don't think so. I don't think you did your research on that one. Uh, but, you know, Sheen, uh, excuse me, Ryan got Sheen accused of heresy and he interfered with, excuse me, with, with Sheen's students. There was a, uh, let me see, I, I had to track this guy down. Unfortunately, he was no longer alive by the time I tracked him down. He died 20 years before. Father Lambert Victor Brockman, he was a Franciscan who was you know, going for his doctoral program and was being advised by Sheen. And they rejected his thesis. I mean, come on, you've got Fulton Sheen advising you. I don't think that your thesis is going to be that bad, especially compared to Monsignor Ryan's. But uh, he complained that the, the faculty who rejected his thesis were jealous of Sheen, Fulton Sheen. And Monsignor Ryan later testified, well, uh, he of course, denied everything. He says, the, the charges of jealousy and so on all emanated from Dr. Sheen's very vivid imagination. And he made them quite generally known around the university and off campus. In other words, Fulton Sheen was delusional and he was loudly proclaiming that Ryan was after him all the time. And, you know, this is, it, 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 it's, it's, it's just Sheen's imagination and he's telling lies to everybody about me. I thought, strangely enough, nobody else remembers this. It's not recorded in any other books. It's only in, Fulton, in Monsignor Ryan's testimony that Fulton Sheen was lying. Now, things were getting so bad that so one faculty member informed the rector that another had stated that he would use every means, no matter how crooked it was, in order to have Dr. Sheen removed. Well, the only one who had a vested interest in that was Monsignor John A. Ryan, and he apparently admitted that he was going to use everything he could come up with to get rid of Fulton Sheen. But true, false, invented, doesn't matter as long as you get rid of Fulton Sheen. It's justified because he, was, he could refute Monsignor John A. Ryan's theories, which were modernist, socialist, and new age. And as far as Monsignor John A. Ryan was concerned, Fulton Sheen was the most dangerous man on earth because he could refute what John A. Ryan was saying. Now, things... Uh, really came to the, the final denouement, I think that's how you say that, uh, came when the rector delayed the appointment of Monsignor Ryan's hand-picked successor to head up the School of Sacred Sciences. Boy, the fat was in the fire then. But see, the thing is, he only delayed it. He didn't reject it. What he said, he was trying to raise academic standards which was the last thing that Monsignor Ryan wanted, because if people actually knew this stuff, they would reject his theories. And But what Rector Ryan said was that, I will appoint your successor as soon as he earns a Doctor of Divinity. Now, Monsignor Ryan himself had an STD, a Doctorate of Sacred Theology, not, but, uh, the, uh, not the other STD as far as we know. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I should not have said that. <laughs> that was all. Uh, but a, a DD is kind of, uh, it, it's kind of second best to an STD, but Ryan, he absolutely exploded in rage. I mean, why? Because you're saying that your successor, you have an STD, all I want is that your successor have at least a doctor of divinity to head the School of Sacred Theology in a university dedicated to the training of priests in the United States? And you're objecting. Well, he actually, John A. Ryan actually circulated a petition to be submitted to the bishops of the United States to have James H. Ryan removed as rector. 
because he had thwarted uh, John A. Ryan's intention to have a friend of his appointed as his successor, which he hadn't really done. All he had said was, I want somebody who's qualified in the position and I will immediately appoint your, your hand-picked successor as soon as he qualifies. Oh, how terrible. So you know what happened. There was, if Fulton Sheen had opposed the rector on a trivial matter, you know, under Shahan, he was not going to let something like that go by and he refused to sign the petition. And here was Monsignor John A. Ryan was demanding that every member of the faculty sign this position, petition to get rid of the rector. And Sheen said it was unfair not to give the rector a chance to defend himself. Now, notice that, and this is from Sheen's own autobiography, Sheen did not absolutely refuse to sign the petition. He said he would sign it if the rector was given a chance to defend himself and he did not accept the, the rector's you know, defense. No, that was not enough for John A. Ryan. He demanded instant obedience to every whim of his. And he was absolutely infuriated with Sheen. Now, you ready for this one? It said, the next day, and this is verbatim from Fulton Sheen's autobiography again, says, the next day there appeared on the bulletin board of the School of Theology a notice to the effect that all of the classes of Dr. Fulton A. Sheen had been suspended in the School of Theology. James H. Ryan, the rector, knew the reason, namely because I had defended him. He then transferred me to the School of Philosophy. In other words, got him out of, from, of Ryan, Monsignor John A. Ryan's clutches, which, of course, doubly infuriated Monsignor John A. Ryan. Surprise, surprise. Uh, now, that was what Fulton Sheen said about the reason for his transfer to the School of Philosophy. When, a short time later, there was a visiting committee to investigate irregularities at the Catholic University of America, primarily why on earth was the head of the School of Sacred Sciences Theology circulating a petition to try to get rid of the rector, and there is utter chaos at this university. What is the problem here? Well, as Monsignor Ryan testified, uh, and this is from the minutes of the the visiting committee, May 13th, 1931, a significant date, which we will return to later. Uh, my Father John A. Ryan told the committee that Dr. Sheen was transferred because he was unhappy. He seemed to feel that he was not fitted for the work in theology and was academically unprepared to teach the classes he was asked to teach. Baloney. This is one of the greatest intellects in the American Catholic Church or in the Catholic Church as a whole, academically unprepared to teach courses in theology when he had just been awarded a degree at the Louvain at the highest possible level that 40 people in 600 years had gained. Okay, oh, but he's unhappy. It wasn't because he refused to do what, the, what Monsignor John A. Ryan said, it was because he was a lousy teacher. Yeah, right. Now, as far as I'm concerned, either Fulton Sheen or Monsignor Ryan was lying. Uh, you can probably guess who I believe. Uh, now, now, the next incident requires a little backstory. Uh, in 1928, Fulton Sheen began what he called his electronic apostolate. You know, for years, he was known as the first televangelist and all this other stuff. To me, that's kind of denigrating when you consider what he was really trying to do. He wasn't just some showman. There was real substance there. I mean, when you can go up against Milton Berle, there's got to be some substance there. <laughs> Uncle Fulty versus Uncle Milty. Anyway, he was possibly more popular than Father Charles Coughlin, who was a sort of friend slash acquaintance of Monsignor John A. Ryan. Uh, we'll, we'll get into that in our next exciting episode. But that sort of stuck in Monsignor John A. Ryan's craw too. And in 1933, Monsignor Ryan influenced a friend of Sheen's, I, I say 
Monsignor Ryan influenced. This is my opinion, but I think there's very, very, very strong evidence that it was Monsignor Ryan doing it. He influenced a friend of Sheen's to try to get him to stop, you know, his radio, his electronic apostolate. And so Fulton Sheen said, I asked him, the friend, the same question that the Lord had asked the scribes and Pharisees. Do you say this of yourself or has someone else told you? He said, you are right. Someone else told me to tell you. We both knew who it was. And this was on, on page 78 of Fulton Sheen's autobiography. I'm not making any of this up. Most people don't even know this happened. Well, actually read the books. You'll see. Now, <clears throat> okay, don't worry. We're getting on the home stretch or at least close to it here. <laughs> I mean, if I told everything that Ryan did that affected Fulton Sheen, we'd be here for a couple of days probably. And it wouldn't really advance the thing. I'm just trying to give the highlights to show you where this is going. Uh, now, uh, obviously Monsignor Ryan was getting a little desperate. Uh, and apparently he was getting desperate. He says, uh, in the summer of 1931, this was after, you know, that whole visiting committee thing and uh, Ryan's testimony about how unhappy and unqualified Fulton Sheen was. Fulton Sheen went to the Vatican in the summer of 1931, a month, about a month or so later. And he met with Eugenio Pacelli, the Vatican Secretary of State under Pius XI. And of course, you'll recognize him. He later became Pius XII. And the rumor started spreading at Catholic University that Fulton Sheen had delivered a secret report about the rector John, James H. Ryan to Pacelli, which a couple of years later got James H. Ryan removed as rector of the Catholic University of America. Now, in my opinion, it was James H. Ryan's failure to deal effectively with John A. Ryan that got him removed. They needed somebody there to control this loose cannon. But the rumor was that spread it quickly was that it was Sheen had carried tales to Monsignor to to Pacelli about the rector, which later got him removed. And of course, this rumor drove a wedge between James Ryan and Fulton Sheen, which of course was exactly what John Ryan needed in order to maintain his position of power. That's my opinion. But I think, I mean, look at the timetable. You got uh, the rector, uh, Monsignor Ryan cancels Sheen's classes. Sheen is transferred. Ryan testifies that you know, basically telling a few fibs about why Sheen was transferred and the whole issue about the rector's removal. Then Quadragesimo Anno is issued two days later. It is issued May 15th, 1931. Sheen is called to Rome to discuss the problem of the Nazis and, you know, national socialism, socialism, which was one of the points of Quadragesimo Anno with Pacelli. And then the rumor starts that it was really about James H. Ryan in order to destroy the, the alliance between James Ryan and Fulton Sheen. Not that I absolutely know that that's what happened, but it suggests it. Now, in 1938, leaping forward a few years, as I said, I'm leaving out a lot of stuff that happened in the interim. Uh, Sheen started to give some radio talks on Quadragesimo Anno you know, the 40 years after encyclical on the restructuring of the social order. Now, according to Sheen, the encyclical called for uh, arbitration and unions of workers and employers. On January 30th, 1938, Sheen proposed the formation of professional groups or guilds made up of employers and employees working together for the common good. On February 6th, 1938, Sheen proposed ownership, profit sharing, and increased wages for workers. Now, there's reasons why increased wages and profit sharing can't go together, but I'm uh, Sheen, that, that has nothing to do with, with that. I mean, this is not a dissertation on economics. Uh, although it could be, if you like. <laughs> Wait a minute. If we have another series, I can bring in Walter Ruther and his, his proposals. Uh, uh, Ruther was a good guy after a while. He stopped being a socialist. Uh, 
Now, another little backstory here. In 1937, three priests of the Pittsburgh Diocese, Father Charles Owen Rice, Father Carl Hensler, and Father Gregory Barry O'Toole formed the Catholic Radical Alliance in, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. All three were either students of or strongly influenced by Monsignor John A. Ryan. And when they said radical, they meant it because they were strong advocates for all the new things and backed the new deal to the hilt. Now, so Sheen, Fulton Sheen seemed to be a special target of them for some strange reason. Now, when in Sheen started giving these radio talks explaining Quadragesimo Anno in January and February, now on March 2nd, 1938, the Pittsburgh Press uh, published an interview with uh, Char... I've got so many notes written on my notes that I can't, I can barely read it. That, uh, you know, the Reverend Charles Rice, who was the spokesman for the Alliance. And this is a direct quote from the Pittsburgh Press of March 2nd, 1938, page five, if you just happen to have it handy. I'm sure you do. Uh, the Catholic Radical Alliance today aimed a blow at the Monday night speech of Right Reverend Monsignor Fulton J. Sheen, Catholic radio orator, claiming that certain of his statements could be interpreted as being unfair to organized labor. Right. Actually, I've read those speeches. I mean, another thing about Fulton Sheen is he was never going to leave a word of his unpublished. He published everything. A lot of his stuff was published by the, I think it was the Catholic Men's Council in little pamphlets. Fulton Sheen would give a talk, they'd print it up and distribute it. Uh, I mean, just general Catholic information and catechesis. Fulton Sheen said, there are very few people who hate the Catholic Church. There are millions who hate something that they think the Catholic Church is. So the way to counter that is with education about what the Catholic Church really says not garbage coming from the Catholic Radical Alliance of Pittsburgh. Uh, Makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Now, of course, the Catholic Radical Alliance, all three were heavily influenced by Monsignor Ryan's social doctrine and employed his tactics to good effect. I mean, I read the newspaper reports. They were pulling stunts all the time. Uh, Father Hensler was described as the brilliant pupil of Monsignor John A. Ryan. Of course, and of course, he was described as the father of the living wage and the great social justice advocate. I mean, they always said, great, magnificent, brilliant. Uh, well, now to continue the, the quote, it says, Monsignor Sheen seemed to imply that labor is responsible in whole or in a considerable part for the violence that has attended labor disputes in this country, said Charles Owen Rice. As I said, I've read them. That's not what he said. Now, but notice the careful way that Rice phrased these things seems to imply. Well, where does he imply it? What did Sheen say that implied this? Well, he wasn't going to tell you that because he hadn't said it. Now, what's it? Now, this is pretty much, you know, the, the end of that 10 year period of, that Sheen spoke of in, you know, Life of Christ, you know, basically a 10 year crucifixion or decades long, uh, a decade long, sorry. Uh, now, what's interesting is that if you notice, Father Rice did not, later Monsignor, he did not specify anything that Sheen actually said. He just said, this seems to imply. Well, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean anything. And actually, it was Father Rice who years later wrote something to the effect that uh, he implied that anyone who disagreed with Monsignor Ryan's interpretations of Catholic teaching is a traitor to Christ. Now, a friend of mine thought that that was definitely an allusion to Fulton Sheen. I've read it, and I think that it included Fulton Sheen but you can't say for sure. So when you ask why Fulton Sheen thought that he had undergone a period of trial for 10 years, at least now you know the highlights of that, or I guess I should say the lowlights. Uh, now, but that was not the end of Monsignor Ryan's influence. Uh, 
the next time what I'd like to look at is his influence or lack thereof on the New Deal. In fact, he was called the Right Reverend New Dealer or Monsignor New Deal. Hmm. He backed the Democrats to the hilt. And we can see what came of that. And we'll get into his relationship with uh, uh, Charles Coughlin, you know, the, who was known for anti-Semitism and a few other things, which was a complete mystery to Monsignor Ryan before he went against FDR and the New Deal. He was completely unaware of Coughlin's anti-Semitic tendencies. Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like these guys were playing clueless. <laughs> oh, wait till you wait till you hear some of the newspaper reports I got of them. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, <laughs> Archbishop of Baltimore says Coughlin and Ryan should just shut up. <laughs> okay. You don't get journalism like that anymore these days. <laughs> oh, oh, you get it, but it, it's not anything about the truth. Exactly. I saw the day in, 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 True the, too. in Washington Post. They they are really pushing uh, Biden as a traditional Orthodox Catholic. Yeah, you look at that, I, you think uh, Joey's the walking saint right now. Well, yeah. I mean, he carries a rosary with him. <laughs> Why, he actually goes to Mass on Sunday. <laughs> Not like that scurrilous John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Yeah, yeah. Now, I have a few things to say about Kennedy, too. but And I'm not saying, you know, whether Biden or Trump is going to be better or worse for America. I'm just pointing out that the Washington Post is clearly grooming, you know, Vatican on the Potomac. Yes. I mean that Biden is a great practicing traditional Catholic, if you want to think that. Well, Michael, appreciate it as always, and uh, see you next week. Okay, I plan on it. <laughs>